Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad you joined me today. Thank you for uh, spending this time. We're going to have a great hour with Bob Moeller. He and his wife, Cheryl, have a wonderful ministry to help reconcile marriages and relationships. And they also have quite a powerful ministry to singles as well. They, they love to talk about relationships. And if you are in a place where you are feeling wounded and maybe your heart is uh, feeling wounded and you've been struggling with uh, intimacy, uh, you're going to want to focus in on this hour. So let me know if you have questions. You can send me a text to 877-933-2484. Bob and Cheryl have written a book called Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. And he's on the program now. Bob, welcome. Hey, Bob. As we push buttons, there we go. Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nice to have yes. you on the program. You know, it's been uh, so powerful to watch what's been going on in our country the last week, and there's uh, so much need for healing and forgiveness, and the heart is a pretty uh, scary place to live, isn't it? It is. Um, you know, our hearts can be wounded by two things. They can be wounded by sin, which is our own um, our own wrongs that we do, and it can be healed by pain, which is the things other people do that hurt us deeply. And if we're not careful, our hearts can become hardened over time, and, and we can just quit giving and receiving love, but that's too high a price to pay. Yeah, interesting. You know, Bob, what would the Bible talk about? How would the Bible explain the unpredictable nature of, of, of our hearts? Well, you know, the Bible uses the word heart over 900 times. So it has a lot to say about our heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I went to a, a lot of school, um, and I learned a lot of wonderful things, but I was never really taught that the heart is the heart of all relationships. You know, the the greatest commandment of the Old Testament is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's the first thing that God is looking for from us is that he would have our heart. And Jesus affirmed that that was the greatest commandment and said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself as the second great commandment, meaning not only should we love God with our heart, we need to love our neighbor with our heart. And so it is the, both the problem and the solution to relationships, uh, whether it be in our family or in our marriage or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, our security lies and our, our ability to make uh, wise, loving decisions. And if that place is damaged, Bob, it's going to be hard to function well, isn't it? Well, it is. When our hearts have been damaged, now we struggle giving and receiving Mm -hmm. love. And the way that we may 
um, compensate for a damaged heart can be anything from depression to anxiety to becoming extremely withdrawn or, or silent or detached in our emotions. We can become, uh, we can be overcome with feelings of rejection. Um, we may um, uh, end up being very hostile and controlling, very perfectionistic, or we can just lose focus altogether and be unable to, you know, really function. Um, so, you know, the heart, when it gets wounded, if it isn't resolved, it is going to play out in our relationships, in our emotional life. Most people think when they come to talk to us about their marriage, I ask them, what is the problem? And they point to the person across the table and go, well, there's the problem. I mean, fix him, fix her, and we're good. Mm -hmm. And I always have to say to them lovingly, they may be a problem to you, but they're not the problem. I said, I'm not, I'm not doubting they're a problem in your life or their behavior is, but they're not the problem. Well, what's the problem? They'll say, well, it's our heart. And, you know, Jeremiah, I just read this the last day or two, it says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, there's aspects to our heart that we can't even begin to comprehend. But the Bible also says that God searches the hearts, our hearts. He knows what's in the heart of man. And I'm grateful that he searches my heart not to condemn me, but to bring me healing and to bring me restoration. You know, as the psalmist you know, said, um, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked or offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank heavens we live in this age of grace that when God searches our heart, it's not to come down with a hammer, but it's to hold out the magnet of his love that it could be restored. Mm -hmm. Bob, would you say that a lot of couples that come into your office for uh, your time together would say that my issues are someone else's fault? Oh, quite often. I, you know, I think that, you know, people do want to blame others, but um, while we cannot stop how people have treated us, nor even necessarily manage how it impacts us um, in the sense of, you know, does it wound us or not? We can choose whether we respond to the pain or whether we react to the pain. In couples that get into reacting to each other's pain end up spiraling downward. You say this, it triggers me. I say that, that triggers you. We get into the crazy cycle and we're reacting. Um, Maybe I can put it this way. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. Mm, I like that. So when you talk about stepping on each other's pain. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit. Well, let's say that your spouse was raised in a home where uh, it was a very critical home, very judgmental home, where everything you did got criticized. And when you were criticized, it was often very harsh or shaming. And you always felt like at the end of it that you had just been whittled down to not much. And so criticism came to be a very painful experience in your life. Well, you get married and your spouse says, you know, I really wish um, that you had checked our bank account before you used the debit card. 
and all of a sudden the other person just lights up. What do you mean? That I'm the one who spends too much money here? What? I'm the one that should be earning more money? You don't ever make you know expenditures? You, you check with me on everything? Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, um, no, I just meant we, only, we had less than you thought, and, you know, it went into a negative balance. So I just emerged. You see, what happened is you touched on their pain of criticism, mm-hmm. and it happened to be about money, and it, it, it lit them up. And if you don't understand that, people can – I don't know why this is, uh, Bill, but it seems like the person we're attracted to often and that we marry is perfectly suited to step on our pain. <laughs> <laughs> seems like they were designed in order to do that. And um, uh, why is that? Well, maybe it's because we marry someone like one of our parents and we're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of personality type we were drawn to. But, and I just read this the other day uh, by a guy who published a, uh, an article, 16 Things That I Learned From My Divorce. Uh, it, it's had 6 million hits on the internet. And one of the things he said was uh, that our spouse is perfectly suited to step on the wounds from our childhood and to trigger them, but that we should see that as a gift as opposed to a curse because that is an indication to us that's where we need healing and we should follow that. You know, if this is what lights me up, they maybe didn't mean to do so, but they've done me a favor by helping me realize this is an area of unhealed hurt in my life. And what I have seen is that when our hurts do get healed, Bill, even if they get stepped on, they don't hurt as much. Or we don't react the same way anymore. It doesn't bother us. We're, we're, we're beyond that. And so that's a wonderful place to get to. But most people don't realize that, hey, it's a perfect storm. I was great. The way I'm wired it perfectly steps on your in the way you respond to me perfectly steps on mine. And we think we shouldn't be married to each other or that we made a big mistake. Well, maybe not. Maybe we just both have come to the place where we now know where we need God's healing. Mm-hmm. And Bob, just to set the record straight, couples n- never argue about money, do they? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I guess, you know, one of the advantages of, of heaven is that there will be you know, no ATMs there exactly. needed or anything else. And exactly. We'll be so happy when that yeah. day comes. You know, money's about power and power is about value. Very often our money's about values. And if our hearts cannot discuss values without triggering each other, then money becomes a huge issue. Mm, that's so, uh, so well said. I mean, if there is, if a person feels threatened that they're not providing enough or they're not being sufficient and, they're uh, feeling inadequate, boy, that's going to set off a spiral of bad emotions. Yeah, particularly if they grew up in that environment. Exactly. Particularly if that was one of the struggles that they saw at home. You know, money tends to be one of those home movies that we play over and over again, you know, in a marriage, that that what we saw as children is what we learned and and how we're acting about it now. but the real deeper issue of money, I believe, is trust. Do I really trust my spouse? 
if I trust them, even if they're not providing at the moment, they're not able to or whatever, I trust that they're trying. I trust that they want to. Um, I trust that maybe at the moment they're doing the best they can, and I need to just support them, and together we need to trust God. Um, and we, you know, one of the conclusions I've come to about money is that if God thought he could trust me with more, he'd probably give it to me. Mm. Um, you know, I've often thought, you know, I, you know, Tevia and Foot Fiddler on the Roof, is there anything so wrong, you know, he says, with being rich? You know, and, and would that be such a great problem if I had more? Well, there's nothing wrong with having wealth. It was a wealthy man that, that put Jesus in his tomb and, and, and mercifully, sacrificially gave him a beautiful place in the garden tomb. It was a wealthy man that did that. Wealth is not condemned in the scripture. The the, the love of wealth is condemned. But um, often when we're pursuing money, this has been my experience, at least what I've seen with couples, Bill, is that when it becomes a big issue, it's really a means of self-medication. Mm-hmm. I need more money, more things. I need to be able to buy more, spend more, travel more, because that takes away my pain. Yeah. All right, Bob, let me take a little break. Uh, Bob Muller is my guest. We're talking about relationships today. If you have a question, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. 17 minutes after the hour. We'll be right back. Bob Muller is my guest. Bob and his wife, Cheryl, wrote a book called The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. And Bob, whenever we bring up the topic of money, it always uh, triggers lots of emotions for lots of people. And you know, this whole idea of, of giving someone your trust when it comes to the finances, I think for a lot of people is a very scary proposition because it brings up so much past pain and hurt and fear well, and insecurity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, if you grow up in a home where there wasn't enough or didn't seem to be enough, um, that can really, you know, trigger things in your adult life. Uh, I've seen it where people just sort of give up and and don't try to provide. I've seen it where people become obsessed with always having enough or more than enough. It seems to be the, the way of the heart that we often react. We often go to the other extreme of whatever it was that, that that went on or we're trying to protect ourselves from it happening again. And that's where a couple can really have a productive conversation. Um, sit down in not in a pressure situation when you're behind on the rent or mortgage or somebody has overspent or whatever, but when times are more calm to have a conversation, you know, what did uh, money what what did money do for your home when when you were growing up? Was it a blessing? Was it a curse? Was it something that was a mystery? Was it something that was a god? Was it something that was? What did money mean to you? Mm-hmm. What did it mean to your parents? And to listen to that, and particularly if there's hurts involved in that, and to care about those hurts. Um, because I think that where there are wounds from money and how it was used or misused or not provided for, 
is an opportunity for you to care about your spouse uh, in a particular way now that I believe would build trust. Mm -hmm. Bob, would you say it's one of the hardest areas uh, for people to trust is in this area of finance? I'm not even speaking about as a couple, but just as an individual. Yes. I think in life, you know, money is the closest competitor to God in Scripture Mm -hmm. that exists. Jesus said you can't love both God and money at the same time because they both ostensibly provide the same things. God provides security. Money does. God provides significance. God does. Uh, Money provides for our needs. God does. Or, Or so it seems that money will. And so money becomes a real competitor, you know, for God. But, you know, there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm learning recently, uh, relearning. And one of them is um, you can't outgive God, that if you make giving to God and his work uh, your first priority to supporting the church, to supporting, you know, giving sacrificially for the work of the kingdom and, and the ministries associated I don't think you can outgive God. I think he always has a way of more than blessing or returning that to you. I think another thing I'm learning is if you want to have enough, make sure others do first. Say more about um, that. Well, what I mean by that is if you want to, let's take the recent COVID crisis and people were uh, hoarding things. And, you know, going out with shopping carts filled with uh, toilet paper and paper toweling and, and whatever else, people emptying the shelves to take home and hunker down and whatever. I think that was exactly the wrong thing to do, both for your own peace of mind and for the well-being of everyone else. Um, you know, I have just found, and maybe this is the principle of generosity that Scripture teaches, given it shall be given to you, shaken down, poured together in your lap, flowing over, that type of thing. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What I found is that if I'm more concerned about others having enough than I am myself, or I'm more concerned about blessing others than I am being blessed, somehow I have enough. Somehow you know that widow that used the last of her oil was it to feed Elijah or Elisha to make that bread whatever she took the very last she had and used it for someone else mm-hmm. and That's the end beautiful. result was she had more than more than enough to spare um, I'm this is a sort of a growth edge in my life to be very honest that I'm just beginning to discover if you want to have enough, make sure others do first. Um, I'll give you just an example. You know that uh, you know I needed to go get some medical supplies at a at a Walmart, and my wife called to see if they had some because it was during the height of this hoarding thing and whatever. And she said, "Well, we have two boxes of this left. I'll save them for you." And I went over there. I drove right over there because the shelves were empty for this particular item I needed. And um, and uh, she kind of joked. I came up. I said, my wife called. And she goes, yeah, I have these two boxes. What's it worth to you? <laughs> <laughs> and she laughed. And she handed me the two boxes. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted me. If these are the last two boxes in this store of this item, why am I taking them? 
I mean, why am I taking both of them? And I handed one back and I said, you know, someone else is going to come in today that needs this as well. You know, make, make sure they get it. And um, I, I just think that that is, that is, you know, God convicted me at that moment. That's what I was supposed to do. And I think in, a, in times of shortage or in times of panic or hoarding, the idea is let's get as much as we can for ourselves. And, and No, the idea is what can we right now give away? What else can we do? Um, who else needs this more than I do? And it's just amazing when you take that attitude, how somehow at the end of the day, you have enough. Mm-hmm. I love that attitude. I, I had that with a, a particular protein bar I like, and I went to the store and there was three left. And I thought, well, I'll grab all three. And I thought, no, there's someone like me that's going to come looking for one. And so I left one. <laughs> <laughs> you feel that You feel that little instant conviction. So eh, it's interesting. Um, here's a question, Bob, from a listener. How do you heal an angry heart when you live with an angry spouse? Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that you live, anyone has to live in an atmosphere of anger because anger, you know, um, it says in the book of James that anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. All of us should be quick to, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Um, I make a distinction between a person's behavior and a person's character. In other words, someone may be angry and, and, and the way they act is, is, is hostile and it's injurious to others. That's wrong. And, and we need to call it wrong. We need to treat it as if it's wrong. Hostility used to wound other people is wrong, period. And end of story. But what I try and do is not judge that person. They may be angry in their behavior, but my guess is they have a wounded heart. My guess, and we have something called the emotional pain ladder, and I think I've shared it on your program mm, before. You have. It is the steps that our heart progresses. Hurt is the first rung of the ladder. Pain, it progresses to pain. Pain to frustration, frustration to anger. And so when you have somebody who is angry, more often, this is an explanation, not an excuse, okay? I'm not excusing angry behavior. But a lot of angry people I now understand are just hurt. And frustrated, right? They're they're frustrated because they're in pain because they've been hurt. Mm -hmm. And if you can get them to talk about their hurt, they can begin to let go of their anger. Because God has given us an emotion to deal with our hurts. It's called sorrow. And sorrow has a healing element to it. It says Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Mm -hmm. That the Bible says godly sorrow leaves no regret. Yeah. Okay. All right, Bob. I need to take a break. Please hold that thought. We'll be right back with uh, Bob Moeller. If you have a question about a relationship, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. It's 29 minutes after the hour. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. It's 31 minutes after the hour. Bob Mueller is my guest. We're talking about, well, right before we went to break, we were talking about sorrow and how to heal. And Bob, you had a thought so beautifully teed up at that point, and then I, I cut you off. <laughs> it's okay. It was, it was probably going to be a divot to anyone. You know, what I'm saying is that even the most angry spouse, um, I believe that person can can change, and, and and God can change their heart. Um, and one of the ways that He does that, that I watch and witness and encourage in our ministry, is I have someone tell me the story of their life, and I go back to the very beginning where they were raised, the home, the quality of their parents' marriage the atmosphere, the three worst things that happened to them before age 18, the three worst things afterwards. I listen for all that. And sooner or later, I hear wounds, hurts. Um, some were, were systemic. That's You know, I'm, my home it was an alcoholic home. Others, it was a trauma. I lost someone. My parents divorced, whatever. Sometimes it's that. But what happens is people don't, people get angry quite often. Because their hurt morphs into pain, their pain into frustration, their frustration into anger. And what I encourage is when your spouse is angry, if you can have a conversation sometime, not in an argument, and listen to their story, you're going to hear things that deeply hurt them. You're going to know that because many times they start fighting emotionally. I mean, fighting back tears. They, they, they start to quit. I've seen men do this. I've seen the toughest guys you can imagine come into my office who, after me listening to an hour or two to their life story, are wiping tears from their eyes. And and I haven't said anything. I've just been listening. You let a man talk long enough, he'll walk you to the door of his heart. And you'll find what it is that really hurt him. And usually that hurt is the trigger point for his anger or hurts. And if you can start caring about those hurts and you can t- and explain to them, you know, look, we, we don't have to be angry. We don't have to shout. We don't have to become intimidating. If anything, we can just share our sorrow over what's happened. And I can care about that. And no one gets hurt. Um, I've helped men who were abusive husbands who pin their wives to the floor in anger turn a corner. Jesus did this. When we found their hurt and their spouse and others, they needed to pray and own them, and they needed to ask forgiveness, of course, for what they had done. They need the responsibility for it. But then when they began to realize that, look, if I express to my spouse my hurt instead of my anger, they can care about that, and I can care about their hurts. And sorrow doesn't intimidate anybody. And sorrow gives us a chance to care for each other. And that's that's how we help angry men get unstuck, mm. is we get down to the point of their hurts where yeah. they now learn to express sorrow. Their spouse cares about it. Other people do. And they don't have to be angry anymore. Um, instead, that hurt can be addressed instead of in a rage. It, it can be addressed by by sharing honestly my sorrow. And it works. I get that. I understand how that would work. 
All right. I'm pretty sure all of my listeners are graduated in the top half of their class. Um, one of them named Guy says, whatever the race, color, creed, or circumstance of an individual, they will experience no real healing as long as they choose to identify as a victim. What are your thoughts on that, Bob? I have to agree with that. I don't believe the Bible teaches victimhood. It teaches that we're more than victors, more than conquerors through Christ. Uh, I I don't believe that our wounds or the things that have happened to us should become our identity. Our identity is in Christ and all that he has done for us. But Jesus also said in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And to admit that I have a broken heart over something in my life or whatever does not make me a victim. It does, though, make me a candidate for God's healing grace. It makes me, um, it puts me in a position where I can seek that. I, I, I do not believe in victimhood because I, I, you know, the Bible simply doesn't teach that. Our lives are not the sum total of how other people treat us or look at us. If we do that, then we surrender uh, our personhood to other people. But at the same time, if how people have treated me has wounded my heart, I need to recognize that. And I need to come and ask Jesus if he would heal that. And I need to share with other people how they might care about that in my life. We are to care about each other's burdens. Um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He does save those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, what happens more often than not, I think, Bill, is that people don't look at the unhealed parts of their heart, and they do not connect it with the emotional and relational problems they're having. And as a result, it never gets resolved, and it ends up injuring and hurting other people. Um, I am responsible for my response to what has occurred to me. I am not helpless. I am not caught up in this, you know, like a, a jellyfish in the in the tidal uh, currents of the ocean. At the same time, uh, if, if if I don't understand why I fight with my wife, why I don't get along with my coworkers, why I have a hair trigger temper. I don't understand why I struggle with depression so much of the time. Um, well, how are you going to move forward in your life? All right, Bob, here's another question from a listener. Uh, how do you communicate with and kindly interact with someone who doesn't want to see their own faults? Um, yeah. Well, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's always a challenge when someone isn't willing to um, look at their own faults. I guess I approach that in one of two ways. First of all, I want to be open to my faults. As Gary Chapman says, we cannot change another person, but we can influence them. And I can influence someone unwilling to examine their own faults by, at least in my life, in a healthy way, being willing to examine my own and being willing to explore those and be willing to model the humility that comes with being wrong and, and admitting it or asking forgiveness. 
my example of doing that sometimes can influence another person. Number two, it is not my job to change them. It is God's job. Someone once, a missionary couple actually from Minneapolis shared this with me. They, they put three of those cups, those um, red party cups, plastic ones, 16 ounce or whatever, solo or whatever they are on a table. And they said so often uh, the three cups are God on the left side, me in the middle, my spouse on the right. And I'm hammering away at my spouse trying to show them their problems And I'm telling God on the other side how upset I am with them, and nothing changes. They said, here's what you need to do. You need to move your cup out of the middle of the three, and you need to put God in the middle. And you need to tell God what it is about your spouse that you want them to change or needs to change their fault, and let him tell them. Let him be the one to explain to them. Show them what they're doing. God has a remarkable way of getting the attention of people. When we step out of the way and we quit trying to be the Holy Spirit and we let God do that. You know, let me give you an example. (laughs) A man was telling the story about how he was late on a payment once to a credit union. And uh, the the owner of the credit union called him up and absolutely, you know, uh, you know, dressed him down. Uh, you know, you are just so this, so that. What a poor excuse, you know. And he just yelled at this man for being late on his payment, and you know, just completely humiliated him and shamed him. Well, my friend tells me that a year or two later he read that somebody at that credit union embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars underneath the president's nose. He didn't know about it, but it caused it to go into insolvency, and eventually it had to be sold, and the president was fired. You know, God is a just God. And when somebody mistreats others, and somebody uh, is blind to their own faults and how they abuse other people or whatever, God has a way of getting their attention. Um, he does notice, but we have to now. If you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out of it. You need to get help. If I'm not saying you stay in the middle of an abusive situation, but let's just assume your spouse has faults. Um, you know, tell God about them and um, trust Him with that. Now, maybe you need to speak to some of those because of a problem that it's truly creating. But do that in a way in which you say this, I feel this way or that. I feel this way when you do this way or that. Okay, you're telling your emotional response to their behavior, as opposed to saying to them, you are such a jerk. You are such such a loser. You are so stubborn or whatever. The minute you start pointing and saying you, they quit listening. But if you can make an I statement where you simply tell them how their words or actions are making you feel, that's fair. And hopefully that will get that person's attention. And they will begin to see you are not attacking them personally. You are criticizing their behavior. And, and those are two different things. What if they say, well, you always then have to turn, around, turn it around and make it about you and your feelings? Well, um, You know, the question is, do you do that? Do you always turn it around and make it about (laughs) yourself? 
Well, you know, maybe you do. And if so, you need to recognize that. Uh, you know, it may be that you do. On the other hand, you can say to someone like this, this isn't about me, this is about us. And I want us to be able to live, uh, to give and to receive love, to feel respected and cherished. I want us to be understood and to understand. And right now, I don't feel that that's happening, but I really would wish it would. Um, Gary Chapman suggests a couple of questions for influencing other people. And I just thought a lot about this. They aren't easy. He said, if you have a problem spouse in some ways that you would like them to change, you go to them and you say, what is one or two things about me that I could change that would make me an easier person to live with? Maybe just one or two things that would make me an easier person to live with. And they might have it right on their the tip of their fingers, you know. Oh, yeah, if you would do this, you do that. He said, well, go ahead and try doing what they say. And then come back and say, is there something else that would make me an easier person to live with? And he said, in many cases, maybe not all, in many cases, the conviction is going to set in. That you've been asking what you could do to be an easier person to live with, and you've been trying to do it. And have they... And at some point, they may really say, lo and behold, well, is there something I could do to be an easier person? Now you haven't manipulated them. You haven't yelled at them. You haven't pressured them. You've simply modeled um, a humility before them. And by the way, Bill, I believe humility, not to be humiliated, but but humility is probably one of the most powerful weapons any Christian can ever use in a given situation where things are not as they should be. That that humility of heart, you know, Jesus described himself as, I am gentle and humble in heart. Come unto me if you want to find rest. I have found that genuine humility brings with it the ability to convict another person more powerfully than anything I know of. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, Bob, let me take a little break. Bob Moeller is my guest. His book uh, he wrote with his wife, Cheryl, The Six Hearts of Intimacy, Enjoy Deeper Love and Passion in Marriage. Time for a couple more questions. Let me know what they are. Text to 877-933-2484. It's 46 minutes after the hour. We'll be right back with Bob Moeller. My guest, we're talking about the six hearts of intimacy, enjoy deeper love and passion in marriage. Here's another question for you, uh, Robert. What role does accountability play within a marriage relationship in regards to helping each other heal and overcome from those weaknesses and hurts? Well, you know, we all need um, to live the Christian life in community and to be accountable. 
Um, you know, that it is when we are isolated and alone that we are most easy prey for our enemy. And whatever uh, dark places there are in our own heart is when we are alone, that's, that, that kind of um, isolation is very toxic. But accountability um, means that uh, I am willing uh, for my life to be examined in light of the uh, spiritual goals or faith that, that I pro- profess, that um, I claim to be married, I claim to be faithful, I want to be accountable in that. And it means a willingness to have that tested, to have that um, examined, an openness to see whether or not that is, uh, you know, actually happening in my life. I think in in a marriage that we have to be accountable to each other for the things uh, that really matter. Um, I, I don't think it should be coerced. I don't think it should be legalistic in that sense. I think it should be voluntary. But um, if I can just give you an example, one of the things that I've tried to do is, you know, give my wife access to all my social media, all the computer, all the phone records, history, browser, whatever. Um, can look at any of that that she wants to any time. And uh, there's just steps or hedges we put in place, you know, in terms of uh, accountability. Um, if someone is unwilling to be accountable in their relationship, it's usually because there's something they don't want to be discovered, or the person perhaps who's holding them accountable is doing it in a very um, loving, harsh, un- uncaring way. Sometimes that happens where, you know, people are are really just trying to manage or run someone else's life. I think all true accountability um, is voluntary, but I think it's absolutely necessary for healthy relationships. Um, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says, um, that that we allow other people to have access to our lives and allow them to evaluate in a loving way and tell us when they're worried or when they're concerned or if they see something uh, that should be a, you know, a problem to us. If someone isn't willing to be accountable, I, I can probably hear that in the questioner's voice, it's probably because they feel, A, there, there might be something that they're trying to hide, but B, they might be uh, really um, concerned about the reaction of that person to, their, um, to whatever they might learn about them, that it would be harsh, judgmental, uh, shaming, rejecting, uh, that it might be, you know, whatever. Um, I, I believe that our spouse is our greatest ally or should be in the struggles in our life against those things that are, are besetting sins. Mm-hmm. That we should, uh, we need an ally. We, we don't need an adversary. And so the spirit in which we hold someone accountable, I guess to close the loop in my thought, is all important. It needs to be loving. It needs to be supportive. It needs to be accepting. It needs to be forgiving without being indulgent or, or codependent. Mm-hmm. Bob, if someone struggles with control, what's a good first step to take? Or maybe they, they fear being controlled. 
Well, that's generally the case. Controlling people are driven by fear. They are afraid that if things, if they're not in control of what people say, do, and act, something bad is going to happen to them. Uh, controlling people usually have been controlled uh, by things that, that, that treated them poorly, or they saw an example of that in their home in which control or domination was misused, and they picked it up. But believe me, fear is behind it all. And so you really have to begin to probe as to what is the real fear. I once knew an individual in a Christian organization that was legendary for his control and his temper. And this was a Christian organization. And his tirades and rants and treatment of people was just horrible. I learned from someone who knew him as a child that he was overweight, that he was picked on at the other kids at school, that he was the last kid on every sports team when they were choosing up teams. Now, that doesn't excuse any of that. But you can see where this guy determined, I'm never going to let anybody treat me this way again. We call it turbocharging. We call it bulldozing. And it's a tactic that's meant to def- defend our heart against someone hurting it again. Wow. And when people come to see us, we go, you know what, for no extra charge, <laughs> we'll take your, and we don't charge, uh, for no extra charge, uh, we'll take your uh, bulldozer and put it in the uh, dumpster. <laughs> um, well, I, don't, and I know one of my friends actually puts a $20 bill on the table who works with couples and says, for $20, can I buy your bulldozer or your turbocharger? Wow. Would you sell it to me so you can go home without it? You don't need it anymore. This person loves you for who you are. That's very sweet. And they're going to care about your heart. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got a dumpster full of bulldozers. <laughs> I don't know if they can be recycled. Maybe they can. Yeah. But we are uh, still in this uh, phase, which has been going on for eight or ten weeks now. I don't, I've don't. i lost count. And there's been a lot of people that I know have been feeling isolated and alone. And maybe they live alone. And they're starting to figure out um, how do you reconnect uh, when everyone's out in public not making eye contact, wearing masks, and you're already starting to feel alone and isolated, and you've got a heart that might be feeling that way. Do you have any encouragement for those people in in that uh, place in life? Well, I do. Uh, Cheryl and I have a ministry um, on Sunday nights. We have a Zoom meeting for older singles, uh, many of whom feel very isolated and feel marginalized, sometimes even in the church. And we just have a two-hour question and answer online thing through Zoom. And sometimes we have as many as 45 singles and whatever. And um, these are older singles, divorced, widowed, never married. So these people can, can feel very isolated. My advice is nothing terribly original, but I still think it's, it's, it's very true, which is the greatest way to deal with loneliness is to reach out to lonely people yourself to discover and reach out to those who may not have uh, many contacts, that may not have many people. There is always someone more lonely than you are, always. There is always someone more in need of human contact and, and human kindness. And I think that, that it is incumbent on the church to pay special attention. Every study says that loneliness is the number one emotional problem uh, or pain that people deal with. 
that, that it's it's not just a certain age group or or, or demographic that loneliness is a problem. But yet, you know, if we will um, reach out to those people in an unselfish and caring way, you know, Jesus said, when you hold a banquet or a party, go out and, and get, bring in the blind, the lame, the beggar, the outcast, whatever, bring them all in. People who cannot do anything for you in return necessarily find those people and uh, gather them together and care about them. And so I guess I, I really feel that the, the the cure to loneliness is for us to take the initiative to other people who may be struggling with that. And I think when you do that, you will see light come into their eyes. You will see hope come back into their face. We should make opportunities for that in the church. We should make that opportunities, you know, as we're allowed to again in our homes, you know, in that kind of thing. But I think, Bill, if you have a heart to care for the lonely, God will will point them out to you. Mm-hmm. He will He will bring them across your path, and it will be an opportunity for you uh, to show the the love and the compassion of Christ. Jesus traveled all the way to Samaria, and if you've been watching the Chosen, uh, this series by Dallas Jenkins, I really recommend that on the disciples free on YouTube, The Chosen. He travels all the way to Samaria to meet one woman at the well. Beautiful. Who was who was outcast and, and, and couldn't even draw water at the same the mm-hmm. other time. Well, Let's I'll send, follow his example. Yeah, I'll send the listeners to fourkeepsministries.com. That wraps up our show for the day. Bob Mueller's been my guest. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.